Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navara, broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London. I'm James Butler. In an 1871 letter to Dr. Kugelman, Karl Marx described the partisans of the Paris Commune, the unemployed and semi-employed, poet workers and artist shoemakers, thousands of ordinary men and women involved in a great and daring experiment in living as storming heaven. Not long after that, the forces of reaction and vengeance butchered thousands of communards and crushed the commune. For those who escaped, however, the experience of the commune would become a profound event, organising their thought and indeed reorganising and altering their theories of revolution, politics and social life in ways which would not perhaps have been possible beforehand. Joining me in the studio today is Aaron Bastani, erstwhile founder of Navarra, an occasional proponent of fully automated luxury communism, uh, and Kristin Ross, professor of comparative literature at NYU and author of a new book, Communal Luxury, The Political Imaginary of the Paris Commune. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, James. Today we'll be talking about the Commune, what those involved thought and the ways in which that thought survived the Commune itself and some of the resonances between the Commune and our contemporary political situation. Those of you listening at home can, as ever, join in the discussion, heckle, bloviate, mock, philosophise or simply make reflective comment on the hashtag NavarraFM. Perhaps to begin then, we can start just briefly, as I'm sure the topic isn't necessarily familiar to all listeners, um, with a kind of conventional account of, of what the Commune was, um, those 72 days in Paris. Um, how did it begin? Uh, March 18th, <laughs> Kristen. Well, the way it's usually told is that, uh, you know, that the, that the state, the French state, made a bungling attempt to, uh, to disarm the Parisian workers who had, who had been participating, in a sense, with the another bungled attempt, which was a, a, a very poorly thought-out war that, that the, um, the state had declared with Prussia. And, and so when they came in and they tried to uh, essentially make the workers pay for this war that they had, um, they had disastrously uh, entered into and take away their weapons, uh, they resisted, the workers resisted, and um, the state sort of caved in. They, they withdrew, and Paris was left with no magistrates, no functionaries, no police, no uh, administrators, and the Paris Commune was declared. So in a sense, it's a, it's a kind of... Re- the, the state or the temporality of the state recedes. There's an interruption... And then 72 days later, the state comes back with a vengeance and essentially, you know, massacres the, um, the, the workers who, in the meantime, had been organizing their social life according to the principles of, of cooperation and association that they had, they had dreamt of doing in the past. One of the things that becomes clear in the historiography of the commune, certainly over the course of you know the late 19th century and the 20th century, uh, is the way in which it gets pulled between two separate discourses. One uh, is that of uh, the commune as a kind of foundational act of the, the Third Republic, right? Um, mm-hmm. So so all of the, the communards become <laughs> sort of heroes of a, a, a state, a nation state, which they, they would have had no truck with, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, you know, the, by sort of by hook or by crook, this still gets taught, in fact, in, in French schools, <laughs> certainly. Uh, and it's a real and profound insult to, to, to the memory of the communards. Um, but it, it also gets drawn into um, a sort of communist historiography where, you know, it's, it, you know, it's usually, it usually comes in as, as a kind of 
object for critique, right? You know, right. It's, a, it's kind of ineffectual uh, seizure of, of power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a, there's an apocryphal story I think that, that 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 I think you make brief reference to of Lenin, 73 days into the Russian Revolution, mm-hmm. going out and doing a dance in front of the Winter Palace in the snow because he'd outlasted the Paris Commune and therefore uh, his, his revolutionary theories were therefore more demonstrably true. Uh, and and should be should be emulated, but but so let's let's see if we can pull apart a bit this this notion that either that 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 uh, that the commune was some sort of aberrant uh, sort of uh, uh, dress rehearsal for a proper revolution, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, part of a kind of. Uh, uh, over-enthusiastic republicanism. Right. Well, that's exactly your your uh, the argument I try to make is that is that now is uh, a moment when we we can begin to see the commune and say different things about it than have been said in the past by those two historiographies, and they they really have controlled and instrumentalized the way that we can th- even think about uh, what occurred. In part because, I mean, what they both share, and it's true that the the French Republican history, in order to corral the commune back into its, you know, into its narrative, has to turn it into a reformist movement. It has to say, well, they were really trying to reform the beginnings of the bourgeois state and the bourgeois republic, uh, rather than destroy the state, which in fact they were doing so so that's how the you know that's how the um the french national fiction turns the commune into a kind of edifying narrative and and the the dead communards become martyrs to the republic official state communist history does something very similar in the sense that it also is concerned with with creating a kind of edifying progressive story where in this case the communards become martyrs to to state socialism you know they become they they perform the errors that that the bolsheviks and 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 everyone coming up afterwards uh then can go on to correct so the um this is you know, so we have this sort of located between these sort of two you know, rather falsifying historiographies. I think perhaps one of the the, the things that that's really amazing actually is is the way in which um, uh, certainly for for communist historiography, the way in which this this ignores you know actually the way Marx responded yeah. uh, to the commune. I mean, I quoted from from his letter as it's ongoing there. I mean, in fact. The letter opens with his concern that uh, Paul Lafargue is 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 in Paris and you know might get killed or you know whatever. Uh, uh, but it's, it, it you know this this sort of uh, in, you know it, despite what would have been reservations on Marx's part about the, the way in which mm. people were undertaking this, uh, recognizing that uh, perhaps on a barricade there are indeed only two sides, mm-hmm. um, and choosing very very much to to embrace and yeah. and, and support um, and and eventually finding in fact. It profoundly altering his way of thinking. Exactly. Um, but but perhaps rather than concentrating for the time being on someone like Marx, we can go back uh, and and rather than uh, interpret the commune as arising as as you know, just a sudden historical break, which has mm-hmm. often pre- presented right, you know, came out of nowhere. Uh, in fact, it had roots extending years back in 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 uh, these clubs that you talk mm-hmm. about. Perhaps you can. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you, 
The problem with uh, the way that both of those st stories that I've just mentioned create um, represent the commune is that uh, it's almost as though it's there to fulfill this generic these generic requirements of tragedy, with you know the seventy two days, the massacre at the end. And um, and especially in France, you know, I, I just uh, returned from three weeks over there talking about the book. And when I was going around, I was I was really amazed by the fact that unless you had a militant culture in France, you really were left with just a few images, maybe the head of Louise Michel mm -hmm. and then the corpses at the end. And that's about it. You know, that's 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 essentially uh, the, the standard association in France today. And I think that that um, what I tried to do was sort of open up those 72 days both by um, beginning my story really differently. I don't begin with the canons. I begin instead with uh, these <clears throat> this whole network of uh, reunions and, and working class meetings that were allowed to flourish at the very end of the empire and where for the first time, you know, workers were allowed to associate. They were allowed to discuss. They were allowed to meet up. And it was in that context that the whole idea of a social commune was even invented and and instilled in a lot of people's um, imagination and, and, and regularly then called for for the last two or three years before the commune was in fact declared. So if you begin with the canons, again, you're, you're, in, a, you're in a narrative where the definitive um, conjuncture is, is the, the conjuncture is defined by the war with a foreign country. And I wanted to show that that war with Prussia was in fact an interruption of what was an ongoing civil war and that that was that was the dominant politics of the of the period yeah i mean how how comparable were these reunion clubs to the jacobin houses that preceded 1789 what kind of continuities can we see between these two there there is yeah there's certainly continuities but you know one of the things that is really apparent from the outset is that is that the internationalist culture of these meetings, and you know, the interesting thing is that 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 the international had fifty thousand members mm. in Paris that spring. So that that's enormous, and these people were very much a part of the meetings as well, and that included people from Belgium, people from all over, really, and um, and what what went on in those meetings was 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 certainly had aspects coming out of that Jacobin tradition, but it was a laboratory of political invention. And what would happen to those terms, like some of the old terms like citoyen, for example, or universal republic, which dates back to the French Revolution, when it enters into the, the commune laboratory, it's essentially transformed. The politics are transformed so that the term universal republic, to just take one example, it, in the French Revolution, it corresponds to a tiny, tiny flicker of internationalism that was quickly yeah. uh, disappeared. Whereas I would say that, 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 that a kind of working class internationalism really defined communar, uh, communard culture, and it was what they were attempting to express when they used the term. So it was a little different. A question that builds on that. Then, what what's the 
decisive factor in changing this kind of um, this perspective from one that was relatively um, introspective to internationalist from 1789 mm-hmm. to almost 100 years later. Where does that internationalism come from? Is it changes? This is quite an expansive question, so mm-hmm. you can you can demure from answering if you wish. Was it changes in technology, or was it changes in how radicals had chosen to organise? Because it's really an incredibly rich mm-hmm. global picture of contention and radicalism that you paint in that opening chapter, particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, uh, and and I think it's one that's really crucial for us today if we're trying to, you know, refashion any kind of internationalist political con- conjuncture in our own time. But I, th- I guess I would say that. It comes a lot of it comes from, and this would be a place again where where there's a lot of resonance with what's going on today. With look at the way that, for example, young people live today, and the kind of necessarily nomadic um, work relations they have, mm-hmm. or attempts to find work, having to, you know, go to other countries to work, cross entire continents to try to find work. That situation resembles very closely the life experience and the work experience of the artisans and, and workers who made the commune. In that, you know, if you take, for example, Eugène Potier, author of the Internationale and a very important figure in the book and in the artists' movement during the commune. He was a guy who painted on ceramics. He was part of a very, very numerically significant um, population of communards who were arts and crafts workers, essentially artisans. That culture, that working culture, was itself nomadic. So that that you had um, in any in, in Potier's. Uh, atelier, for example, you had Spanish people, you had Italians, you had every everyone moved from region to region, and even from country to country in that in that milieu, so that they were they spent more of their time looking for work than they did working, and I think this is this again is very close to the way that that uh, people and especially the kind of pre precariousness of of, uh, of labor today has has in a sense recreated a lot of those same internationalist trajectories among young people. I mean, obviously there are enormous differences, but it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book because I was trying to say that in 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 many ways. Um, the world of the communards is closer to us than is the world of our own parents. Mm. It's, it's interesting. The, I, I, I believe the, the Versailles at the time, the sort of forces of reaction, um, uh, were, were, you know, the, the propaganda they put around were, was very much sort of, oh, you know, most of these communards are, are immigrants. They're, they're sort mm. of, you know, they're, they're foreigners. They're, they're sort of external threats. And this, you know, this resonates, you know, even down to today where we have, you know, any kind of insurrection in the city is like, oh, there are outside agitators mm. or, you know, so on and so on. It's very easy to see those continuities. And one of the things that struck me in your, your discussion just now of um, uh, the, the way in which the, this, the, the, the sort of signs or the, uh, the terms of uh, the old revolution, so Universal Republic, for instance, become appropriated and renewed, it reminded me of uh, a line in, of all things, uh, Voloshinov, Soviet literary mm-hmm. critic, 
Um, in, right, so rather turgid, to be honest, work, um, uh, Marxism and the philosophy of language. But he, he, I like that <laughs> It's It's hard going, to yes, that much. Um, but, but he writes about the, the, the Janus-like quality of signs, mm-hmm. and particularly in moments of class struggle. Um, where the, the sort of in, he, I think he, he says the sort of inner dialectical quality of a sign uh, can suddenly be turned, uh, and and I think we find this with with the notion of the commune, right? And the, right. The, right, that something gets revealed uh, in the practice of the commune, but but also with things like universal republic and the way that, that people are thinking about what these these signs and these terms mean. Mm-hmm. Um, you open the book with a uh, story from the, the the memoirs of Louise Michel. Uh, where she's speaking with uh, uh, a guy that she's guarding. I can't remember where she's guarding. Uh, but, yeah. but they're both there with, with their rifles. And this is a, this is a black guy, right? And right. He's, An he's been in uh, the Pontifical Guard. And they're talking about how they, they, they're thinking about the experience they're having. And she says, oh, it's like uh, a distant shore I'm trying to reach. And he says, oh, I'm thinking of it more like a, uh, an illustrated book. And I thought that was, I, I, I found this fascinating. And I think, yeah. you know, I think it's really, really important, uh, you know, the way in which the same experience, mm-hmm. you know, the same movement can include these very, very different conceptions, actually, about, about what people are mm-hmm. doing. And, and on one level, I think... Uh, this this notion of the illustrated book is both sort of you know there's a certain passivity to it, mm-hmm. uh, but there's also a sense in which you know, you know what's going on here is it, it is the idea that actually something dead you know textual is suddenly coming to life is 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 that mm-hmm. is that working there or is it you know so th- this real mm-hmm. sense of, of of people actively making yeah. uh, these things it's it, you know and it seems it seems to me that this frenzied sense of activity and whole new worlds opening up is is something that that runs both through your book and and all these accounts of the commune. Well, I would disagree about all the accounts because, you know, if you go back and you look at a lot of the histories, they spend all of their time on either the legislative quarrels down Mm. in the Hotel de Ville or (laughs) the the kind of uh, step-by-step sort of military battles. Mm -mm -mm. And so I actually had to clear away a lot of the terrain to get to the something like the anecdote mm-hmm. that you just recounted. It's not something that leaps to the forefront in most accounts. And that's, that's actually because, I think, of the way in which, again, those larger historiographic tendencies mm-hmm. have kind of controlled the, the story. So I also had to get rid of a lot of um, the subsequent sort of um, analyses, you know, that have that have that have kind of, uh, you know, what Mao said about the commune or what Trotsky said about the commune. Or I mean, even people who are very sympathetic p- politically to the memory of the commune, um, I had to kind of of throw all that out in order to see um, the emancipatory exercises or acts that were occurring there as as a as a you know a terrain of everyday life and not and not some sort of acting out of theoretical you know purities or I want to move on a bit and talk about uh, the uh, the sentence that gives the title to the book it's from the um from the artist manifesto, I'm just going to dig it out. It opens this chapter. 
Right. Uh, we will work cooperatively toward our regeneration, the birth of communal luxury, future spen- splendors, and the Universal Republic. And that's from the Federation of Artists Manifesto uh, of April 1871. And there's, there's so, so much going on in that sentence alone. Um, you know, uh, regeneration. I mean, that that idea mm-hmm. in itself is you know, the, the the sense in which that you know the the organisation of society and the way it has been has has, has been pathological and degenerative. Um, that 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 and, and you know this is a, a point I think you come back to again and again in the book is that this sense of something mobilising against uh, you know the the, the standard organisation of life, um, which which certainly survives the commune um, and and becomes fundamental to it but but i i mean i i can i can see what drew you to that sentence but but perhaps you can talk a little about you know what that kind of uh what's really being reached at by 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 that phrase communal Mm -hmm. luxury yeah well if you right when they use it the artists i think they had something fairly specific in mind and what they were thinking about was Something like public beauty. Mm-hmm. So they meant that, for example, everyone has the right to live and work in a pleasing environment. Now, that might sound like a kind of minor demand or a decorative kind of <laughs> demand or something. You know, it doesn't seem to be about bread or any of the more vital things. But in fact, it if you if you you know think about it 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 actually means a whole reconfiguring of not just aesthetic categories but what it means to labor what it means to you know one's relationship to the lived environment one's relationship to nature all of these things come into play and ultimately i think for that reason they 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 they're really pointing to a whole transvaluation of the notion of value, you know, like how do we come up with a set of criteria or um, a system of valuation that is not quantitative, that is not based on the market, that is that comes from another whole qualitative set of um, uh, criteria for deciding what a society thinks is precious or what a society thinks is valuable. Uh, so, so there, you know, th- I think that the phrase really opens up into into quite a, a profound and extremely um, uh, transformational set of ideas. The other, but the other thing that the specific thing that was going on when they used that phrase, I think, was a very polemical um, gesture that they were making against the representation that the Versaillais were making of the communards uh, and and in their propaganda with the people in the countryside. So, you know, you have to remember that surrounding the city at that point was what Marx called a Chinese wall of lies. And it was a whole um, a net, uh, a web of propaganda that was being sent out to uh, isolate the Parisians from the countryside very successfully actually it came to pass because the those you know it, it then became easier to recruit those country boys to come in and massacre and mop up uh, at the end but what they were what they were trying to say uh, the Versailles was that that 
uh, the, 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 the word they used was the partageux, the sharers, the communists in the city will share, they'll seize your land, they'll share it. <laughs> you know, the, the sharing became, you know, the, the, the most vile thing that you could say. And what was behind that was the idea that also that it was somehow abject, you know, that, that sharing could only be the sharing of misery. Mm-hmm. So I find that, that there's something very useful today about that phrase mm-hmm. in that same political polemical sense because now we look around and what we see are you know states redistributing wealth to the wealthy in the name of austerity mm-hmm. and so there's a kind of anti-austerity sense to uh, this this um, this response to the miserabilisme or the objection that that um, the Versailles were trying to uh, represent the communards as embodying. And instead, they say, no, we embody this. We, we, we embody uh, abundance for everyone. There's, um, there's a figure uh, in the book uh, of whom I certainly knew nothing beforehand and who I think is an absolutely fantastic embodiment of, of exactly this, of exactly what a kind of genuine uh, transvaluation of values would mean. Uh, and he's, uh, he's called Gaillard, Père Gaillard. Um, Napoleon, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he liked to be called Père because he didn't want to be called Napoleon. <laughs> yeah, <quite laughs> it, was, it was not his favorite name. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and this is a guy who, uh, who makes his debut in the book um, being sort of um, ridiculed a little bit by, by, sort of by enemies of the commune. Uh, this sort of slightly presented as this ludicrous figure who... who uh, who creates this barricade of you know extraordinary beauty and, and poses for a photograph in front of it? I, I would love to discover the photo. Um, <laughs> um, and he, he he's you know he's a, a, a shoemaker and an artist. Uh, and perhaps you can tell us a little about him because I, I think he's he's so wonderful. He's the he's uh, he's the epitome of of of. of what was going on in that manifesto, mm. actually, because it was about uh, artisans like Gaillard. Gaillard always insisted that he be called not a shoemaker, but an artiste shoemaker. And he always, well, I mean, he was, he, he was the author of a philosophical treatise on the foot. He believed that, um, as he put it, uh, people should demand shoes made not for the foot as it is, but uh, for the foot as it should be. Uh, so, so, um, and he had a, he had a, he had a, he was one of the survivors. He went with his son to Switzerland where he um, started a cafe, a tavern where they would sell um, paintings that the son had made of the final days of the commune. So they, they had a very creative way of getting by after, uh, after the end. But, um, now the interesting thing about Gaillard is that is that is 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 just that 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 in the in the division of labor between high art in uh, and artis, artisans, um, painters and sculptors, for example, were allowed to sign their work. They were allowed to be viewed as artists, and and uh, and Gaillard is essentially signing his his barricade with his photograph by. 
And the barricade itself was called the Chateau Gaillard. It was enormous. <laughs> it was. It had turrets. It had everything. And um, and you know, people will. He didn't last as as the the head of barricade construction. I mean, it, it, this was one of the famous revocabilities of the commune, where you you, never, you know anyone anywhere could could perform certain tasks. Mm-hmm. And at, after a while, Gaillard himself was removed from that position of of leadership in 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 barricade construction, and the barricades themselves became much more, you know, uh, informal. <laughs> let's say. Yeah. Um- it really struck me that this sort of uh, the sense that uh, you know the, when one is freed from you know, the production of value, suddenly all these these things you know the the the, the way in which work is done and, and and what is produced is also transformed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, it's it's very you know it seems almost preposterous to about you know to us to talk about a shoemaker as as you know as you know, <laughs> concentrating all of his energy on on this sort of you know extraordinary sort of construction. Uh, and, and yet, and yet, I mean, why why should it not be so? I mean, mm-hmm. why should it not be so? Right. Uh, and this is the thing that you know it, it it seems it's you know it's it's only ludicrous to contemplate because you know because we don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it you know the, the notion that work could be so transformed. Uh, is is I think increasingly politically relevant these days, and, and you know, increasingly a, a matter of common sense. I know, uh, you know, certainly. I mean, you, you suggest, of course, that, that that we are in quite a resonant situation, right? And to do very much with with again that that sort of poverty of work uh, and the sense in which you know uh, we also find ourselves, I think, these days very often. You know, uh, trained for work that is not available, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, and this is this this you know it was certainly partially the case in in Paris at the time, um, where where you do have actually a superabundance of, of of people who are trained for work that that, that doesn't really exist for them, right. and so they, they they start to think critically in, in ways about in ways about the city that, that and ways about society that that, that are. Uh, that are dangerous, <laughs> certainly, um, and and uh, and you know this is you know, very often the case in, in prior to revolutions. Um, but I guess one of the things I, I want to talk about is is in, in fact that you know education, uh, and and that's one of the things that that certainly in, in the commune is is uh, hugely important. It becomes a, a chief concern, you know, for someone like uh, even Louise Michel who survives. Uh, he survives the the bloodletting at the end of the commune, uh, and who, at some point later, it sort of starts, you know, flees and is in fact exiled from 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 France um, to London, uh, and starts a, a primary school in a basement where she has the word l'anarchie written in in huge chalk letters at the top of the chalkboard and teaches children about the Haymarket martyrs. And so, this concern with education is certainly part of of, of communard thought and. Yeah, the, to, to quote from you know, one of the, one of, the, one of the, the the quotes you cite in the book is, uh, "He who wields a tool should be able to write a book, write it with passion and talent. The artisan must be able to take a break from his daily work through artistic, literary, or scientific culture, without ceasing for all that to be a producer." And I think there's a a really important part of that last clause there, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know it's that notion. It's there in Marx as well that 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 in fact the the notion that you know, you, you do one thing and everything else like you can be a passive consumer of and you, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in exchange value or whatever. Um, but, but certainly, you, you know, you can't participate in, in, in art. You certainly can't participate in science. And so, so this vision of the human being 
you know, it, it, you know, it's an educational vision, it's a pedagogical vision, but it's profoundly different to to, to education as it exists. And this, of course, yeah. I think is also <laughs> true these days. No. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, and in a way, it's, it, it corresponds directly to what we were saying about Gaillard, You know, because it's really a, a, their notions of education had everything to do with uh, a deep critique of specialization or of 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 tracking. I mean, the, the kind of tracking that would you know, that's certainly traditional in the working class where, you you know, if, if you, if you, your father was a shoemaker, you're a shoe, shoemaker necessarily. And, um, and so what they did the, instead was to say, and I, I find this again, I find this to be such an amazing idea to think about now is that uh, their concern was really about breaking down the, um, the hierarchy between the head and the hand, you know, or between intellectual labor and manual labor. So the only way that they saw to do that was to say that every child, regardless of gender, but especially regardless of class, had to be trained at the same time in a theoretical way, in, in, a, you know, in a way that the sciences, literature, the high arts, whatever, but also to have one or more trades, uh, and to and to do this this kind of training simultaneously and to move back and forth mm. between the two and this is this is this is simply amazing at so many levels you know i mean it's a, it's a kind of breakdown of of uh, of of class of of um, uh but 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 finally it's it's an idea that Many of the uh theorists that are are profoundly influenced by the commune like someone like Peter Kropotkin returns to again and again, or William Morris. I mean, clearly, what happens with <clears throat> the advent of the commune is massively original. But what kind of again, I'll return to that word. What kind of um, uh, kind of what kind of continuation is there with things like, say, the civic republicanism of the Renaissance? You tell a wonderful. There's a wonderful extract of where Emile Zola, an amazing. Um, analyst of his own time um, is kind of rolling over in laughter at the, the thought of Gustave Courbet, participant in art, who's an artist, participating in kind of civic, you know, just the civic life of the commune. He finds it absolutely ridiculous that he would deign to participate in politics. But that's not that dissimilar, say, from the civic republicanism of uh, Renaissance Florence, right? where you would have people involved in the arts or you would have people involved in uh, intellectual work also participating in the political life of the polis. Or do you not see that at all? And were people talking about it? Because that's one genre of republicanism that's very much at odds with, say, the French, you know, sort of republicanism of mid-19th century France, the idea of self-government, radical yeah. democracy, direct democracy, and so on. I guess the big difference between what you're talking about with the Renaissance and... and uh, uh, is that is the is is the the the, the class connotations that go well, along with, the, course, with, yeah. with these tasks, and and that that transforms everything, mm. you know. So that if you're if you're saying that that uh, as the communards did, anybody anywhere can be a political, you know. I mean, I mean, okay, that's that's really it. It's it's that the functionary, the functions, certain kinds of functions still existed. But the, their point was that anyone anywhere could perform those functions. Mm. And that's a kind of uh, – I, I, I don't see that as, as, as having that much of a direct connection with the, with the Renaissance sure, world I mean, that you're – Well, I mean, if you look at, for instance, I think it's Petrarch talks about honorability. 
And it's actually an amazing text because he's saying, look, nobility is not about inheritance. It's not about blood, but it's about virtu. And it's about the capacity for self-improvement. Now, clearly, that's still aimed at the aristocracy, right? Sure. There's no denying that. Mm -hmm. But there is a certain democratic impulse to that claim mm -hmm. that you can also see maybe with the commune. Or is there really nothing there at all? Because I agree with you in so much as clearly the civic humanist Republican projects of, say, yeah, Florence in... You know, the early 16th century. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that is not 18, you know, 1870s Paris, but there, there does seem to be something there. What I found was that that uh, if you're talking about the the kinds of of anachronistic um, embraces of of past historical moments, mm -hmm. you know, on the part of the communards, it was not so much to the Renaissance. The Renaissance was not. Really, uh, if anything, I'm thinking again of not just the communards, but of the the kind of cluster of politicized supporters and fellow travelers that I talk a lot about in the book, like Morris or Kropotkin. These people were much more drawn to medieval and tribal societies, precisely because they were they were pre-capitalist. And already in the Renaissance, you know, you've got, you know, something mm -hmm. else going on. But they were, in fact, actually very, um, uh, very concerned with certain moments of the past. But I would say it was more something like medieval Iceland. Mm. You know, that was, that was of a far more interest to mm. them. I want to turn to a sort of, to a, and you quote it in the book, it's a, a quote from uh, Recluse Short text called Art and the People. He said, oh, if, if the painters and sculptors were free, there would be no need for them to shut themselves up in salons. They would have but to reconstruct our cities, demolishing those ignoble <coughs> cubes of stone where human beings are piled up, rich and poor, the beggar and the pompous millionaire, starvelings and satiated victims and hangmen. They would burn all the old barracks of the time of misery in an immense fire of joy. And I imagine that in the museums of works to be preserved, they would not leave very much of the pretended artistic work of our time. And one of the things that, that you know, strikes me about this is that there is this... Uh, dialectic, I suppose, I'll try to avoid that word wherever possible, really, but um, of destruction and creation, right? Um, and it, it, it's visible certainly in, in French anarchist literature at the end of the 19th century as well, this notion of an almost apocalyptic uh, grand soir, you know, mm -hmm. great evening, that, that night when everything turns, um, both in the sense that, that, you know, a huge conflagration and insurrection that, that really that levels out all of, all of human history up to that point, but also marks the initiation of human history properly for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, so really that, that, that we arrive on an equal footing there uh, and, and the entire use of the city changes. Every, everything, everything is, is changed. That, those big, dead, empty, monumental spaces are completely overturned. Uh, I mean, you, you quote on this uh, William Morris, who, who wants to see Trafalgar Square, uh, in, in rather in parallel to, to the, the pulling down of the column, uh, the Vendôme column, uh, wants to pull down sort of uh, you know the column of Trafalgar Square and make it into an orchard of uh, you know apricot orchard, and you know I think this 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 allows us to turn I think to to more general political questions right. And I suppose one of the accusations that can be levelled at Morris, that can be levelled at Reclus, can be levelled at, at the sort of anarchists of, the, the, of this period, is a sort of archaizing tendency. I mean, it's certainly there in Morris much more than it is in, in anyone else. You know, a kind of uh, rose-tinted view of the past, a kind of localism, uh, a sort of 
suspicion or antipathy towards industry, towards the city. And to, to my mind, like I can see the attraction of it, right? I mean, I <laughs> really can. But, but I'm also suspicious of it. I'm kind of skeptical about it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's a problem. And, and it's one I think we confront more profoundly now because of the intense crisis that embroils the natural world. Um, one that suggests the choice between socialism and barbarism is ever more urgent and immediate. Now, the commune is an urban insurrection. Mm-hmm. And I want to explore what that means and how it was cut off from the country, but how intensely many of the thinkers you reference engage with the natural world and, and how, how that actually is, is, an, is an element that, as far as I'm concerned, has been hitherto unremarked upon in, mm-hmm. in their thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what was immediately very striking to me was uh, and I, I spend a lot of time in the book on uh, something like the, 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 what the French call the survie, the, the life after uh, the life of the commune. Um, and that happens when the survivors go out and, uh, and link up and really begin to have a lot of discussions and projects, in, mainly in Switzerland, but also in London, with the people we've been talking about. And, and this is, uh, I did this in part because I really do uh, believe that Lefebvre, Henri Lefebvre, is right when he talks about, you know, the, I'll use that word, the dialectic of the, the vécu and the conçu, the lived and the conceived, and that, that you know, that, that revolutionary thought and revolutionary action are not the same thing, but they have to come back and, and sort of touch each other again in order to be uh, reanimated. And so, um, so essentially what he's saying is that the theory of a movement only is generated by the excess of political action itself. It doesn't precede the movement. It comes after it. And so I really wanted to follow out the logic of what happened to these people after the experience, including the experience of the massacre, who then go on and, and, you know, begin to try to figure out what had occurred and to put it together with a, a future projects. And what, 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 what dominates these discussions, and they really are fascinating, um, they really give rise to something that, 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 that these people gave the name of anarchist communism to. But the theoretical problem that dominates is how do you put together something like what had occurred in Paris, which is the realization of non-alienated labor. Let's call it that. Mm -hmm. So if you have that in a major capital, European capital on the one hand, how do you think that together with these kind of communist remnants or residues in the countryside uh, that take the form, for example, of, you know, the Russian Abshina, the Russian Mir, not just Russia, though, but, I mean, this is everywhere, really, in the in the non-European world, where you have these agrarian kinds of, of, of formations that have endured for centuries and that are, that are, that are transforming very rapidly, but who still, at least in, you know, in the thought of many, and many Western socialists at that time still had a certain kind of emancipatory potential. So this was the, this was the challenge, you know, how do you, how do you bring the, the country and the city together at that level? And these are, these are really, you know, these are the same, uh, essentially the same questions that Mariatagi will come to 40 years later or Gramsci or a lot of what we think of as third world Marxism. Mm-hmm. 
I want to ask a question, something of a deviation, I guess, from everything we've said hitherto, although it's still picking up on the internationalism of the commune and its disavowal of petty nationalism. Um, you talk about sympathetic uprisings in other major cities, Lyon, I think Marseille. Major cities in France. I would have liked to say more about that, but I actually don't say too much. Yeah, but, uh, but I mean, given that you have the events of 1848, and 1848 is social movement, scholars talk, you know, it's a cycle of contention, expanding cycles of uh, repertoires of contention from Palermo, you know, all the way north, I mean, maybe to Copenhagen or something, just absolutely astonishing, you know, in a really short expanse of time, despite uh, communications technologies that are obviously very, very, very primitive in comparison to our own. Um, so why doesn't, why don't the events of the commune scale in the same way as the events of 1848, given that propositionally they had so much more to offer, they have an internationalist perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, even, you know, the events of 1789 seem to scale a bit more successfully. Um, if you think there's a, I think, the in fact, the first urban insurrection sort of precedes the French revolutions in Grenoble. It's quite an interesting one. But yeah, so the question is this, why doesn't, why don't the events of the Commune scale across France more broadly and across Europe more broadly? Because you talk about, for instance, the sympathetic demonstration in Clerkenwell. Mm -hmm. why, why weren't events more contentious than that beyond France as they were in 1848? Mm -hmm. Well, again, you know, I think, well, there, there I think the particular circumstances of the, of the war with Prussia are significant. And, you know, you do have, a, you do have a, an encircling of the city and, and, a, and, a, and an utter uh, incapacity for any kind of communication to occur. You know, I mean, they were they were down to uh, what is it? Um, carrier pigeons, I think. You know, and mm. and uh, and so the, the I mean, there 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 was such a concerted effort to isolate and control, and you know, sort of the, what was occurring in the in the city that. Through, as I mentioned, all these forms of propaganda, all these mm. forms of of of, of, of actual um, physical uh, kinds of of uh, control, that's one reason. I mean, uh, and then and then and I mean, here we do have to come back to the the, the actual seventy two days and the fact mm. that you then have this kind of uh, amazing uh, uh, reprisal on the part of the state. Beyond that, what occurs afterward is very interesting because then the French state, um, you know, I would say one of the one of the arguments I make in the book that has to do with this is with the aftermath is that um, and people people tend to view the period immediately after the the commune as being dominated by say, uh, the the rivalries and disputes between Marx and Bakunin, you know, so that that ha is held to be what caused the end of the international. And, you know, that's that may be true. I'm sure it's true in some way. But I was really struck by the profound uh, counter-revolution that is continental-wide. I mean, I would mm. say, unfortunately, a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the counter-revolution scales mm. much mm. more successfully mm. in that case. You mm. know, it's very severe and it's, you know, it's, I mean, the French were calling for every communard to be sent back, you know, and, and mo most of the countries joined in enthusiastically on mm. that, you know, effort. 
I mean, if you look at what's called sedimentary structures, right? The sedimentary structures of 1848, transformative. I mean, there's even an argument that German emigres, the United States, radicals from 1848, are the kind of bulwark of uh, the Republican Party deciding to go for abolitionism. There's, a, there's a, actually a reasonably strong argument about that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the sedimentary structures of 1848 really changed not just Europe, but the world. What do the sedimentary structures, brief question, and then I'll, I'll pipe down. What are the sediment structures of the commune achieve in the medium and longer term? So let's say over the preceding decade. Well, what I tend to trace out in the book is primarily at the level of ideas. And so, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the kinds of theoretical um, developments that I talk about uh, that I've mentioned uh, here that, that are um, – that, that is – well, it's not just ideas because it's really a set of practices, too, that have to do with um, uh, a kind of bricolage that is that is neither sort of slavishly beholden to Marxist theory nor to anarchist theory. So, you know, there you, you have the development of a whole series of um, practices, to, just to take one example around, say, the productions of Elysee Reclus and the whole geographical society that he starts. And he's, he's employing these communard refugees who were, who were dirt poor. You know, they had no way of, of, of uh, they were trying to, you know, find work in Switzerland. And he put them to work ar- around this kind of project that, um, that you know of of organizing a, a kind of world geography, for example. Um, this is this is this is at a very different level than the one the example that you're using. But uh, but that's what I would point to is 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 a kind of um, primarily a sort of theoretical development uh, that that. That is that is has to do with this kind of collapsing, uh, or not collapsing, but a, a way of thinking through uh, or analyzing that doesn't, for example, privilege and econ- you know economic exploitation over political oppression or you know mm. the role of the state over the role of capitalism. I mean, they what what's amazing about the ecological thought that that is that develops or. We would call it ecological. I mean, they didn't call it ecological, but it was certainly the whole outline of a set of ideas that comes out of this um, uh, reflection that I that I talked about about you know the um, the commune form or how 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 is the commune form itself? How can that be uh, the way that socialism is is thought? Um, this is, you know, this these, this was actually the a level of, of um, uh, ecological thinking that we don't see again until a hundred years later. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it dies with this generation, and uh, it doesn't really come back until you know a figure like Murray Bookchin or the nineteen seventies. You know, so I would I would put the emphasis on that. And um, I'm really not alone because I think a lot of ecological theorists have gravitated back to these figures like Reclus and Morris and Kropotkin as being at the origin of something of a, of a real anti-capitalist ecological theory. Mm. Which is also not a primitivism, right? I mean, it's, right. and that I think is also really essential. Right. Um, uh, and I think perhaps the thing that, that strikes me the most is. Is the 
you know, you say very early in the book the the way in which the the slogan or the idea of the commune manages to weld together these very different sort of political perspectives, actually. So you, know, you have everyone crying, Vive la commune, uh, and, and into that blends all these, uh, you know, very, it's one it, a thing that is perhaps not widely understood is that, that most of the communards were not Marxists. Right. And this is, you know, there was a small number of readers of Marx and, you know, involved, but, but you know, the, 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 <laughs> the, the political uh, affiliations, there was sort of, you know, all sorts of you know, Proudhonists and, and you know, very, Proudhonists probably in the majority, actually, mm-hmm. was certainly a, a, a major plurality. Anyway, less important. Um, it, but that, the, the form itself of the commune, I think, you know, uh, you quote Kropotkin as saying, for us, commune no longer means a territorial agglomeration. It's rather a generic name, a synonym for the grouping of equals, which knows neither frontiers or walls. Uh, I think that's, you know, I think that's really very perfect yeah. uh, way. But, you know, it strikes me that this is taken up these days as well. Uh, uh, one of the most striking images for me of, of, of political struggle in the last few years is uh, is of the Oakland commune, is, is of that sort of image mm-hmm. of, you know, people riding, you know, walking down with you know, big placards saying, you know, uh, uh, cops move out, commune move in. You know, this, the, the way in which the, 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 the formal experience of something like this um, can manage to hold together uh, and completely reorient the c- coordinates of political thought for for each of these people and the the kind of the ripples in in the wake of the commune i think uh, and and its influence it is really visible in uh, in uh, someone like marx who who is at his most sort of anarchizing mm-hmm. when he's writing about the commune uh, he talks about the state as a boa constrictor and in in you know you know he, he you know that you, you quote him as saying you know its own working existence was the greatest feat of the commune and i think i think that's you know that should be instructive to to those of us who are perhaps susceptible to get sucked into three million word long debates about the value form is that is that actually the the, the you know the, its own working existence uh, was the real achievement of the commune uh, and i think that question of the state is becoming is really really crucial now i just want to read something from uh, the first draft of Marx's Civil War in France. Uh, And he writes, This was therefore a revolution not against this or that legitimate, constitutional, republican or imperialist form of state power. It was a revolution against the state itself, this supernaturalist abortion of of society, a resumption by the people for the people of its own social life. It was not a revolution to transfer it from one fraction of the ruling class to another, but a revolution to break down this horrid machinery of class domination itself. It was not one of those dwarfish struggles between the executive and parliamentary forms of class domination, but a revolt against both these forms, integrating each other, and of which the parliamentary form was only the deceitful bywork of the executive. Uh, and it really strikes me this, this question of the state becomes more and more important uh, through the course of the 20th century because it becomes more complex, right? Part of the 20th century is you know, that, that the revindication of the state hugely, hugely increased state powers. Um, but, you know, there's certainly, I, I guess, uh, continually a political and tactical debate about this. Um, 
one of the things you quote that really, really amazed me and I thought was a perfect encapsulation of really my position on it these days is this notion that one should become part of the state to change it. And I can't remember. Is it Arnaud you quote who no, says... No, it's, it's the, inventor, the, 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 the worker who invented the phrase anarchist communism. And he says as though, as though one has to become a priest to destroy the church yes. or something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is, this is, this is to my mind, the legacy of the commune is, is precisely this sort of the, the managing to, to hold together uh, of a kind of anarchist communism that can can draw from from the sort of you know the, both of those rather pure and antagonistic theoretical schools a kind, a kind of practical and lived synthesis that exactly. is is hugely important yeah, because it's really all I mean one of the things that, that say the commune as a social entity has over a factory for example is not only that it's broader socially it includes the elderly the unemployed children you know but also it it, it it's a about making a life mm, you know it's mm-hmm. about reconstructing everyday life and not simply you know no. i mean the, the one of the things you know that i i'm sort of i i don't want to get drawn too much into you know arguments about the state because it's it's always you know it's always so so sort of sucking but it it it, it, it does strike me that that you know these examples are, are hugely important, and you know we have only four minutes left. So uh, the question, I suppose, of urban insurrection, things like that, can be put to one side. Although I think it is important, I think in one sense to 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 recognise that there's a kind of concertinaing of thought here, right? Where on the one hand these people can think universally, mm-hmm. right? but also think concretely in terms of you know the the city as a political unit and things like that. Um, and and I, I wonder if if that's the kind of thinking that we need now—the ability to to do to, to to operate on all of those those terrains simultaneously. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, one element of all of their thinking is is this kind of obsession with the question of scale. And you're right that 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 there's a fierce sort of anti-statism, but at the same time, there's a kind of clear demand for local autonomy mm-hmm. you know and for something like like what you know what 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 becomes in Kropotkin um, mutual aid and regional self-sufficiency but it's a regional self-sufficiency that is not isolationist mm-hmm. so you know these are the the, the the going back between something like the universal republic the scale of you know this kind of internationalist scale and then this kind of demand for a, a, a clear sort of local autonomy let me read uh, a quote that goes along with the quote from marx that you read and this has to do with um the geographer the communard geographer uh elise reclus he wrote a little book called the mountain stream and i suggest that the commune uh has the attributes that Reclus gives in the book to the mountain stream. He says, it's, I say, its scale and geography are livable and not sublime. The stream, in his view, was superior to the river because of the unpredictability of its course. The river's torrents of water barrow down a deep furrow pre-carved by the thousands of gallons that have preceded it. The stream, on the other hand, makes its own way. But for that very reason, the relative strength of the waters of any mountain brook is proportionately greater than that of the Amazon. And that, I think, is a perfect place to leave it. Kristen Ross, thank you very much. Thank you so uh, much.
Vive la commune! Vive la commune! <laughs> uh, we will be back same time, same place next week. Bye.